podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast on Thursday, February 24th, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, a virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things like American Netflix or BBC iPlayer, whatever it is you're geo-blocked from, while also keeping your data safe. Check out LibertyShield.com and use the code ROUTER50. Router 5.0 to get your router half price. That's libertyshield.com, router50 at checkout to get your router half price. Get using and keep that data safe. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops that you can find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 and RED10 to get 10% off at checkout. Right, folks, busy night last night. Lots of Premier League action, obviously. And we will start in London. Watford won Crystal Palace 4, an emphatic victory for Crystal Palace, though the game was a lot tighter than the scoreline would suggest. Jean-Philippe Mateta put Palace 1 up on 15 minutes. A deflected shot found its way past Ben Foster. Musa Sissoko equalised three minutes later with a towering header from a quality corner. I thought Watford had some of the better play after the goals, but it was Conor Gallagher who made it four, uh, sorry, 2-1 on 42 minutes. Really good first touch and shot from a Tariq Mitchell cross. Gave the keeper no chance. Absolutely excellent finish by a player having an incredibly good season, really announcing himself on the Premier League stage. And you can tell he is going to have a very, very good career. Now, whether he becomes an elite level player or not, who knows? But he certainly has the work rate, the drive and the ability to do it. From there, Watford again had a couple of decent chances in the game and Emmanuel Dennis should have equalised, found himself unmarked in the box as the ball was lofted over to him, had the time to take a touch before finishing, but took it first time and unfortunately skied it over the bar. Game stayed tight until the 85th minute when Zaha picked the ball up in the Watford box, turned his man, got a left foot shot away and gave Ben Foster no chance. Five minutes later, Zaha put the icing on the cake and it felt like this one was a personal dig at Roy Hodgson. Cut inside, beat his man and unleashed a shot into the far corner that Foster had no chance with. 4-1 to Palace. A very, very impressive win for them. A big win for them. One that they needed because they had been struggling a little bit of late. Their first win in five games. Puts them into 11th now, obviously with games in hand. 
things will change. But most importantly, gives them that extra cushion between themselves and Brentford, where I think we're all starting to look at everybody from Brentford down being in that relegation mix. Palace now have nine points on them. You would imagine that over the remaining 12 games, they'll pick up more than enough points and finish the season more than comfortable in mid-table. A great win for them, but for Watford, unfortunately, it's a bad loss, and it's a big loss. Having gotten the victory over Crystal pa- over Aston Villa at the weekend, you, you did think maybe a bit of momentum would come into this, and they might start to show some more fight. And at times they did, but there didn't seem to be a whole lot of belief in the team. There didn't seem to be belief in how they were set up or what they were trying to accomplish in this game. Uh, Roy Hodgson was wearing glasses on the sideline. I don't know that I've ever seen Roy Hodgson wear glasses before. That might just be a me thing. It's completely irrelevant to this discussion on football. But it's just something I noticed last night and thought was interesting. Uh, but yeah, like I say, he may always have worn glasses, but I don't remember him wearing them. Um, Watford are second bottom of the league. 19th place, 18 points, 25 games played. Same amount of games as Norwich, one point more. And it doesn't look great for them. Now, they do have some winnable games left, and maybe they can do enough to drag themselves out of it, but it does get harder and harder to see. And when you when you have the issues that they have in defence, when you have some of the players that they have playing for them in midfield, they're just there's never going to be an easy formula for them to to fight their way out of this. We'll move on then to Burnley 1, Tottenham 0. This was a big shock. This was an unexpected result, given how well Spurs played at the weekend, given the big win they got over Manchester City. You felt like they'd come into this game confident, in a groove, and defeat Burnley. But in truth, Burnley were the better team on the night. Spurs could have gone one up. Harry Kane hit the crossbar. It came more off his shoulder and his back than his head, but he hit the crossbar. From there, I, I thought Burnley was the better team. I really did. And Ben Mee gave them a 1-0 uh, lead on 71 minutes. Great header from Josh Brownhill's cross. Burnley had, I think, the better chances in the game. Jay Rodriguez forced a great save from Hugo Lloris. We had... A scramble towards the end where Ben Mee and Jay Rodriguez both had big chances to score and both fluffed their lines. For Burnley, it's a huge result. Absolutely huge. They pulled themselves now within two points of Newcastle and Everton. A game in hand on Newcastle. Same amount of games played as Everton. They have an easier run in than Everton. They're only three points behind Brentford and they've got three games in hand. Sorry, four points behind Brentford and three games in hand on them three behind Leeds and two games in hand on them and a vastly superior goal difference to everyone else at the foot of the table. Burnley have, without question, the best manager from those relegation-threatened teams. And I include Bielsa in this. And look, Bielsa, if you were to give Dyche and Bielsa a team at the top end of the table, call it United, West Ham, Arsenal, Bielsa would do a better job. He'd be more suited to that. But give them anyone at the foot of the table, and I certainly think Dyche is the guy you want. And Burnley, 
with their personality, their dedication, the way they line up, the way they go about their business. They're the best placed team in the bottom seven right now to stay in the division because they have all the know-how and the pieces they need. Now, they went into last night's game without Maxwell Cornet, uh, so he has to come back into that team as well. But they looked really good again last night. And that's two big wins back-to-back, Brighton and Tottenham. Two very good teams. Not They're not beating scrubs here. They've beaten two very good teams. And they'll go to Crystal Palace now at the weekend, confident they can get something. Then they play Leicester. They'll be confident they can get something. If they can win one of those games, maybe take a point and the other, all of a sudden they could find themselves well outside the bottom three. They could they could find themselves as high as 14th if they were to pick up four points over the next two games. And you wouldn't bet against them. You really wouldn't bet against them because this is just what they do. And Dyche is just a very, very good manager. And it's good to see him finally starting to get the respect he deserves, even in what's been a bad season for them so far. I think people are finally starting to come around on Sean Dyche and realise that the guy is for real. If Everton had Sean Dyche, I'd have no concerns over them going down. Same for Leeds, Brentford, Newcastle. They'd stay up, but they don't have him. Burnley do, and Burnley will stay up, I believe, because of him. I think Newcastle will stay up. I thought for a while they would go down. I wasn't keen on how, but recent form, recent performances has caused me to change my mind. I think Everton are strong relegation contenders. I think Leeds are very strong relegation contenders. And Brentford. Brentford are obviously in that mix as well. But the big problem for Leeds is they just can't defend. They just can't defend at all. 56 goals conceded in 25 games. The worst in the division. They can score goals, but they need to get Bamford back and they need to get Calvin Phillips back. If they get those two back, I think Leeds will be okay. I think that's where Leeds can can save themselves, is that Bamford and Phillips can come back and help them drag themselves across the line. Everton and Brentford, though, I'm not sure what they do. There's only two points between them, and Everton have three games in hand. When you go through Everton's fixtures, you don't see many points for them. But it's an unpredictable league and you just never know. But what a win for Burnley. What a tremendous win and what a bad loss for Spurs. How you can go from beating City away to losing to Burnley away in a matter of days, I don't know. And the flatness of last night's performance, maybe they blew themselves out at the weekend. Losing Bentinker yesterday through injury didn't help, that's for certain. But they just they weren't the same team at all. And that's now four defeats in five. And Antonio Conte was very emotional after the game. And there was rumours last night that he had said he was going to leave, that he was, you know, maybe considering his future. It doesn't appear that's the case. But, but Tottenham really need to be careful with this guy because if they lose him, I don't know what they do. I don't know what the future holds for Tottenham if they don't have Antonio Conte. But he's good enough to still turn this around and get them top four. But after last night's defeat, it becomes a lot more difficult. It's no longer in their own hands. Arsenal, three points clear, now have a game in hand. Wolves, same amount of games played, a point a point ahead. They can still catch West Ham by just winning their games in hand. If they win their games in hand, they'd only be a point behind Manchester United. But you're starting to look for results from elsewhere to go your favour.
And they just need to find a way. Even in games like that last night, find a way to draw the match. Find a way to get that draw. Get a point. They've only drawn three games all season. Them, City and Arsenal. And, sorry, Aston Villa, all with three draws. Oh, and Watford. But Watford have lost 17 games and Villa have lost 13. You don't really want to follow their model. You don't really want to follow the Arsenal or Spurs model of having lost nine either. It's fine when you're sitting, you've won 20, drawn three and lost three and sit top of the table. But, you know, none of the rest is ideal. Spurs have got to get their act together. It's got to happen quickly. I think Conte is the right guy for that job. I think he can do great things there. But they will have to back him. And a lot of those players are going to have to get their act together very, very quickly. Final game in the Premier League last night was Liverpool 6, Leeds 0. I've done this in depth on the Daily Red on Anfield Index Pro or AnfieldIndex.com. Go and listen to that there. Uh, comprehensive win for the Reds. Comprehensive win. Two from Salah, one from Matip, two from Mane, one from Van Dijk. Rampant. It could have been 10 and Leeds couldn't have complained. The penalties were, were nailed on penalties. The funniest part of the second one is if Luke Ayling just doesn't touch Mane, nothing happens because the ball is already running its way to Melier. Just foolish defending. Leeds were just outmatched. They had no answer. And they couldn't cope with the likes of Salah and Thiago or Luis Diaz. Those three tore them apart. Andy Robertson had a field day. Trent had the freedom of the pitch. Matip, he finally went on an adventure and scored. And it was a wonderful moment. But like I say, I've done more on that on the Daily Red. So check that out there. Liverpool moved to within three points of Manchester City. They've now got the best goal difference in the league. They've now scored 70 goals in the Premier League this season in 26 games, which is ridiculous. Uh, They're on course to score over 100 goals this season, um, which, you know, is, is a fairly special accomplishment in itself. To be plus 50 in the goals column after 26 games is incredibly impressive incredibly impressive uh for Leeds it's not ideal worst defense in the league now 56 conceded goal difference is minus 27 second only to Norwich who are minus 38 so at least they've got that going for them um but four defeats in five they're really struggling really really struggling right now and it doesn't get much easier they get Tottenham next then Leicester then Aston Villa then they do get Norwich. That's a game they can win. They've got Watford. That's a game they can win. They've got Brentford final day of the season. And again, it's a game they can win. If they can win those three games, they'll be okay. But I think ideally you'd rather be safe before that final day because you could go into that final day and it could be Brentford versus Leeds for a spot in the division next year. As simple as that. Um... On to the Champions League last night. Two games. One in Portugal where Benfica drew 2-2 with Ajax. This was a fairly good game, to be fair. It was some good football played. Uh, Dusan Tadic made it 1-0 on 18 minutes. And Masraoui cross. Great finish by Tadic. Sebastian Haller put through his own net on 26 minutes, turning home Jan Vertonghen's cross. Haller went down the other end of the field. And scored on 29. Bad, bad goalkeeping. Really bad goalkeeping. 
Um, Flachimodius, I think is the keeper's name. Vlachidimos, I don't know. Either way, he's not very good. And the fact that he wears 99 is an abomination. Um, dreadful, just flapped across right back to Haller after he missed the first chance and he tapped home. But Yaramchuk came off the bench and scored the equaliser on 72 to give Benfica a share of the spoils and give them a chance in that second leg. Uh, in the other game, Atletico Madrid won, Manchester United won. Um, Joe Felix put Joe Felix put Atletico Madrid one up on seven minutes, and Ilanga scored for United on eighty minutes to equalise. United were not good in this game, not good at all. Uh, the first half display was an absolute shambles. They managed a sum total of zero touches in the Atletico Madrid penalty area. In the entire first half, the Pogba in midfield thing once again didn't work. Um, United only really started to look like a real team once Matic came on instead of him. Alanga is a real difference maker for them, a real difference maker. Now, I think uh, Jan Black at his best probably saves that, but it's a good finish nonetheless after good work from Bruno Fernandes to set him up. Cristiano Ronaldo was a non factor as expected. Lindelof at right back actually thought it was a pretty decent game and had a couple of timely blocks and interceptions. But all things considered, it was quite a flat performance from Atleti. They found their way through United very, very easily in that first half, playing through the lines. And in the second half, there wasn't a whole lot from United that you'd be getting too excited about if you're a Man United fan. They'll need to be much better in the second leg. Much, much better in that second leg. Um couple of other bits of news before we go to the break because I want to do questions in the second half. Uh, it looks like UEFA will take the 2022 Champions League final away from St. Petersburg following Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. You've all seen what's happening. It is rather terrifying and um, it would be nice if some of our leaders stood up and had some testicular fortitude to do something about it, you know. Um, something interesting, actually, from that Benfica game last night. So there was a clash of heads. I think I think it was Otamendi and Lisandro Martinez. Martinez clearly wasn't right afterwards. And Chris Sutton and Michael Owen were doing the, you know, the punditry on this game, and they were talking about what to do with concussions. And... Chris Sutton basically, I thought, nailed it. This is something I've advocated for for years since talking with Chris Nowitzki, um, who's one of the leading concussion experts in the US. We had him on Anfield Index for a podcast years back. And after the, it was after Lloris got knocked out at Goodison Park when his head made contact with Lukaku's knee. And he was allowed to play on and it kind of, that was when concussions in football really started to become a big conversation was around that time. And I've, what I've always said is the best way to take care of this would be every single game should have an independent doctor there to assess head injuries. 
and the player should have to go into a concussion protocol, similar to what we see in the US with the NFL, in a room with just this doctor and nobody else. And that doctor should make the decision on whether or not that player can continue. While he's off the pitch, you can bring on a temporary sub, like a blood replacement in rugby. And then if he cannot return, that substitution becomes a permanent substitution, but does not count against your three subs or your five subs, depending on which uh, competition you're in. Now, Michael Owen did his very best to be really ignorant on the matter, tried to compare it to a broken leg, and then said that teams might take advantage of this. Well, they won't if there's an actual doctor there making the decision. So have the doctor on the sideline. He goes on to attend to the player, and he makes the decision to bring them into concussion protocol where he assesses them and then makes a decision on whether or not they can go back to playing. So it won't be abused if that doctor is there and if that doctor is competent, which you would assume they would be. That is without question the best way to deal with concussions in football, to deal with head injuries. And it's the same across all sports. We have to get far more serious about the impact these things can have on the rest of these players' lives really is time to start taking this seriously. If you haven't seen the film Concussion, go and watch it and be terrified. Before I go to break, I do just want to get your attention to an article on the BBC website in uh, called The Infinite Chaos of Greek Football how the latest hope for change would lo- was lost. Um, really, really good piece. There's a quote in it. Greek football is a hydra. You cut one head and others emerge. Really good piece. Go and read that one. Um, I think you'll, you'll definitely enjoy it. Pick your combined Liverpool-Chelsea 11. Okay. Uh, goalkeeper is Alisson. Right back is Trent. Left back is Andy Robertson. Left side centre back is Virgil van Dijk. Right side centre back is Joel Matip or Ibu Kanate. Uh, I'm going to go Kanate to be fun. I'm going to put uh, Fabinho as my holding midfielder, Thiago as one of my eights. The other eight is either Kante or Kovacic. I love Kovacic, so I have to go with him. In attack, left side of the attack, Diaz or Mane? I'm going to go Diaz. Salah, of course, is on the right of the attack. And the false nine. Funnily enough, the one Chelsea player I would have considered here is Kai Havertz. He's not listed. Mason Mount is lifted, listed, and I actually would love Mason Mount at Liverpool in that right-sided number eight role, but he wouldn't have him in my front three. Um, so it comes down to choice between Lukaku and Mane, or Lukaku and Jota, or you know Mane and Jota, more to the point. I think I'll go with Jota. So um, my combined 
Liverpool, Chelsea, 11 is Alisson, Trent, Canate, Virgil, Robertson, Kovacic, Fabinho, Thiago, Salah, Jota and Diaz. <laughs> and and I, I genuinely haven't done that to be funny. I just don't think there's anyone else. Like, Kante, you could make an argument for, but it would be over Kovacic. He's not a better shielding defender than Fabinho. He's not a better sitting DM. And he's not a better controlling midfielder than Thiago. Jorginho isn't a patch on either of them. Um, Mason Mount, you can make a case for, but again, it would be over Kovacic. Like I said, I, I would have actually gone with Kai Havertz in that false nine role because I love him there. I think he's tremendous. Um, I'm sure there'll be Chelsea fans that'll make noise for Reese James. There's no comparison. There's no comparison at left back, even if Chilwell was fit. And I'm sorry, you're deluding yourself if you think Rudiger is on the same level as Van Dijk. And while you may laud Thiago Silva, let's see him in a high line out of that back three. Let's see him defend some big spaces against a bit of pace. And let's watch what happens. Tuchel completely altering his tactics to hide those defenders doesn't make them better defenders than they are. And look, there is a case for Mendy. He's been tremendous over the last 18 months. But Alisson is a better goalkeeper. Uh, it's as simple as that. Um, I might as well do the gossip before we go to break. Because we've got quite a few questions. So I want to get through them all. Uh, Manchester United are confident of landing their tra- transfer targets this summer, even if they fail to qualify for the Champions League with Declan Rice and Harry Kane on the shortlist. Uh, this seems like fanciful stuff more than reality. If they don't make the Champions League, they're not getting Kane or Rice. Chelsea and PSG are leading the race to sign Usman Dembele. I'm not sure that's really a race. More of, you know, you're kind of walking by and someone offers you, you know, like a, a free sample. I think that's more what it is, as opposed to you rushing to get somewhere to buy something. Barcelona have offered Spain defender Cesar Azpilicueta a two-year contract. This one's been going on for a while. Arsenal face competition from Barcelona for Alexander Isak. So they face no competition at all for his signature this summer. Chelsea and Tottenham are, managed, are monitoring Serge Gnabry after his contract t- talks with Bayern Munich stalled. I think that one gets done. The Coleman deal stalled. It got done. The Goretzka deal stalled. It got done. I don't think Bayern are going to let a 26-year-old German international walk away in his prime years. West Ham have taken up the option to extend Ben Johnson's contract until 2024 to ward off potential interest from Arsenal, Tottenham and Liverpool in the 22-year-old, ward off their interest or set the asking price. He is a he's a decent young right-back. Um, his, his development this season has been one of the big pluses for West Ham in what's been a very good season for them. Spurs are interested in Unai Simon as they think about a long-term replacement for Hugo Lloris. All I'll say, and I like Unai Simon, I really do. I think he's a very good goalkeeper. But the last goalkeeper to come from Athletic Bilbao to the Premier League didn't go so well. Former Liverpool midfielder Ginny Wijnaldum could leave PSG after just one year with Atletico Madrid, Newcastle, West Ham and Aston Villa all interested. Um, He's been leaving since the week he got there, according to news outlets. So we'll wait and see. He wasn't making the Champions League squad 
until he did, uh, according to news outlets. Leicester City could renew their interest in Domenico Berardi if the 27-year-old decides to leave Sassuolo this summer. He'd make sense. He would make sense. Uh, West Ham, sorry, West Bromwich Albion are targeting Sean Longstaff, who played under Steve Bruce at Newcastle. Uh, I don't think they had a particularly good relationship, so I doubt it. Former Hull City boss Grant McCann has agreed a deal to become manager of championship side Peterborough. He's a very promising young manager, only 41, not really sure what Hull were thinking in deciding to move on from him. It just seems like one of those bad decisions that badly run clubs make. They're 10 points clear of the relegation zone when he was fired. It just didn't really make a whole lot of sense for him at that for the, for them at that point to move him on. But Grant McCann's a really good appointment for Peterborough. Even if they go down, which does, to be fair, look very likely that they will go down. They're currently uh, 23rd. They're eight points off Reading. They do have a game in hand. They're behind Derby, who've had 21 points deducted this season, which will tell you how Peterborough's season's gone. Uh, Reading, by the way, should be eyed as an almost certain relegation team in the championship because they went and appointed Paul Ince as their interim manager. Now, for those who are unaware of Paul Ince's managerial credentials, allow me to enlighten you. He took over the Macclesfield town job in 2006. He managed there for one year. He won 40% of his games, winning 14, drawing 8, and losing uh, losing 13 of 35 games. Not a bad job. Then he took the MK Dons job. He was there for one year. He managed 55 games, winning 33, drawing 12, and losing only 10, a 60% win rate. That was a very, very impressive bit of managing by Paul Ince, and credit to him. Then he went to Blackburn, and it was a disaster. He signed Paul Robinson, Danny Simpson, Vince Grella, Carlos Villanueva, Robbie Fowler, Mark Bunn, and Keith Andrews, none of whom worked out. He was sacked after 17 matches. Uh, In those seven, no, sorry, 21 matches. In those 21 matches, they won only six. They won three of his last 17 matches. Uh, 11 defeats, 28.6% win percentage. From there, he went back to MK Dons. It did not go as well as the first time around. He was there for one year because it seems like nobody can put up with him for longer than that. And he managed 56 games, winning 23, drawing 9, losing 24, 41%. Then he took the job at Notts County. Again, he was there for less than a year, uh, 29 games, 10 wins, 13 defeats, 6 draws, 34.5. He was sacked from there. He was out of work for about 18 months. He got the Blackpool job. And 42 games, 12 wins, 12 draws, and 15 defeats. Sorry, 12 12 wins, 15 draws, 15 defeats, 28.6% win percentage. He has now been out of football as a manager for eight years. Eight years. He, He left Blackpool in January of 2014. 
eight years he has been out of management and Reading have decided that as they're having a calamitous season, they should appoint him. Uh, fantastic stuff. Um, right, we'll take a break. When we come back, we will get to listeners' questions and have a quick look at tonight's games as well. See you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So, tonight in the Premier League, we have one game. It's Arsenal at home to Tottenham. Obviously, top four is the goal for Arsenal and the new goal for Wolves, as they find themselves surprisingly in that mix. A win for Wolves will put them above Arsenal and really put them in the mix for a top four finish. If they were to win this game, they would be three points behind United with a game in hand. They would be ahead of West Ham with the game in hand. So they'd be in really good shape. They'd be fifth with that game that they can go and win. It would be a big, big win for them tonight. Now, they've won their last two games. They've bounced back from that defeat to Arsenal with two wins, one over Leicester, one over Tottenham. Two good wins. Arsenal, back-to-back wins, obviously, uh, in the last two games. One against Wolves. The other was against Brentford. This is a hugely important game for both teams. It's the type of game that Arsenal normally wouldn't win, but having beaten Wolves only two weeks ago, you think maybe they might have a bit of an edge. But can you beat the same team twice in two weeks? Will be a big test for Arteta. I think it's going to be a fun game. I think I'm going to go with the draw. I think I'm going to go with the draw. But I think it'll be a good game of football to watch. Um, Europa League tonight, we have eight games... Olympiacos at home to Atalanta. Atalanta have a 2-1 advantage from the first leg. Lazio at home to Porto. Porto have a 2-1 advantage from the first leg. Dinamo Zagreb at home to Sevilla. Sevilla have a 3-1 advantage. Real Sociedad against Leipzig. That's tied at 2-2. Napoli-Barcelona in Naples tied at 1-1. Braga at home to Sheriff Tiraspol. That one is a 2-0 uh, lead for Sheriff. Rangers home to Dortmund with a 4-2 advantage. So Rangers should go through, but you don't write Dortmund off. Just don't write Dortmund off. And then you have Real Betis at home to Zenit St. Petersburg. 3-2 advantage for Betis. You'd have to imagine, given what's going on, that some of the Zenit players are going to be a little bit distracted by the news that we've we've gotten this morning. In the Conference League, then, we have Quarabeg at home to Marseille. Marseille have a 3-1 advantage. Bodo Glimt at home to Celtic. Bodo have the 3-1 advantage there. You'd expect them to go through. Maccabee Tel Aviv at home to PSV Eindhoven with a uh, 1-0 advantage to PSV. Partizan Belgrade are one up and at home against Sparta Prague. Randers at home to Leicester. Leicester with the 4-1 advantage. PAOK at home to Mittelland. Mittelland with a 1-0 advantage. Vitas Arnhem at home to Rapid Vienna. Rapid have a 2-1 advantage. And then Slavia Prague at home to 
Fenerbahce and Slavia have a 3-2 advantage. So you would expect Marseille, Bodo, PSV, Partizan, Leicester. The PAOK Mitteljand one's a pick I'll go Mitteljand. I think Vietas overcome and Vietas get through against Rapid. Slavia Prague should beat Fenerbahce at home or at least get a draw to ease the way through in those Europa League games. I would say Atalanta, Lazio, Sevilla, Leipzig, Napoli, Sheriff, Rangers and Betis to go through. Uh, at a guess. Right, it's questions time. So, fact 1977. Suddenly, Wolves are finding the net. Can they only score 13 goals or fewer in their final 14 games and stay in the top half? Or will Burnley's 17-18 season still be the benchmark for offensive futility with a top 10 finish? Uh, I, I think, unfortunately, Wolves are going to score more than 13 goals and I think Burnley are going to keep that unwanted record for another while. Which Dyche probably wears it as a badge of pride. He's probably got it printed out and stuck on his wall somewhere. Uh, YNWA Foodie. Pick one star player from each Premier League club who you feel has been the player of the year for that team so far and why you choose that player. Okay, so let's start at the top of the table with Manchester City. I think Rodri has been their best player this year. I think others, such as Bernardo Silva, Joao Canseo, Raheem Sterling, have outperformed him at each different point. But I don't think they've outperformed him across the course of the season. So Bernardo, for example, was, was better for the first 10 games. Then Canseo for the next 10 and then Sterling for the most recent six or so. But I think if you look at the entire 26 games, Rodri has been the guy there. That one consistent 8 out of 10 every single week. For Liverpool at Salah, he's the best player in the league. I don't think it needs much more than that. For Chelsea, I think it's been Kovacic. I think he's maybe been the best midfielder in the league this year. I think he's been absolutely sensational. What he offers that team in terms of his ability to drive forward with the ball take players on, score a goal here and there, create goals. His passing is exceptional. He's so hardworking off the ball as well. I think it's him. For Manchester United, it's been David De Gea. Behind the defence that has done their damnedest to just fall over their own feet. I think he has saved them a number of times. Now, I don't think he's had a great season, but I don't think anyone there has had a great season. There's obviously the stat going around that since... Ranić took over. They've got this. Well, it was the second most points in the league. It's now the third most. But look at the run they've had. Look how easy their fixtures have been. You shouldn't be overly impressed at what they've done. Uh, and one of the reasons that they're fourth in the league is they've played the most games. So I'm not overly impressed with anybody at United this season. But Bruno's dropped off. Cristiano's been a disaster. Pogba's been a mess. Rashford has fallen off a cliff. Sancho hasn't adapted properly yet. Maguire's been a liability. Varane is what I said he was, which was past his best. Shaw has been poor. Uh, Wan-Bissaka seems to be now third choice right back. Delo, you're not picking. Fred, you're not picking. McTominay, you're certainly not picking. The only one you could maybe look at is Anthony Alanga because he's had a couple of good sub-appearances. For West Ham, 
I think it's been Pablo Fernals. Rice and Bowen get all the hype, but Pablo Fernals is that one consistent performer in that team. He's the creative hub of that team, and I think it's him. For Arsenal, I think you'd have to probably lean towards Aaron Ramsdale, but it's largely because of a minutes thing, because I think the best player in that team this year has been Emil Smith-Rowe. And if you look at minutes per game, or sorry, minutes per goal, uh, or goal involvement, he's right up there with Jared Bowen. He's outscored Bowen this season. He's only played half the minutes or so. So um, I'd go Smith-Rowe, but he hasn't played enough as yet. By the end of the season, I think he will have. For now, you'd go Ramsdale, because he's had a couple of big games for them. For Wolves, it's been Ruben Neves. He has been sensational this season. And I think if you're picking the team of the year right now, maybe him and Kovacic are two-thirds of your midfield. Tottenham. Tottenham's tough. There hasn't really been anybody who's stood out for them consistently all season. Lloris has been iffy. The defence have all been iffy. Romero hasn't been available all of the season. Regulon, I don't think, has been good enough to warrant it. I might just go Eric Dyer because he's been available a bit more. Yeah, God, I think I think it probably is Eric Dyer guy, um, which is just a horrific thing to come up with. But, I mean, you could maybe make an argument for Son, but he did miss a chunk of the season. I know Dyer has as well. Um, there isn't really a standout candidate at all. There really isn't. Heusberg's been up and down with his form. Winks is just inconsistent as well. Ollie Skip had a good run, but then he had a bad run. I'm just going to... Lucas Moura's not a bad shout, actually. Yeah, Lucas Moura might be... Actually, that, that might be the shout by Guy. Lucas Moura has actually had more good than bad games, and it's in a team that have had more bad than good games. We'll go Lucas Moura. For Brighton and Hove Albion, I think Leandro Trossard, now he's been a bit iffy of late, but I think he's had a lot of match-winning performances for them, not necessarily just scoring a goal, but creating an opportunity, creating that goal. I'd go Leandro Trossard. For Southampton, I mean, it's hard to look behind beyond Tino Livermento at right-back. I think he's been just outstanding now defensively the start of the season he wasn't great but as he's gone and gotten more games and more reps I think he's really started to improve at that end really aggressive front-footed player I think Tino Livermento might be the answer for Crystal Palace it's Conor Gallagher he's just been ridiculous his his drive from midfield his pressing his off-ball work his defensive positioning his willingness to track runners and his ability to get in the box and get a goal I think it's him for Leicester City, there's not many good options here at all. Tielemans has not had a good season. Indeed, he's had some injuries and he's been played centre-back. I'm going to just give it to Pats and Daka because I think coming in and adapting the way he has, goals haven't been as consistent as he's wanted. He's sort of scored them in bundles, but I think I'll go with him. For Aston Villa, Maddie Cash, probably Maddie Cash. He's been a consistent 7 out of 10 for them all season. He's not spectacular. He's reined in his attacking game a bit to focus on his defensive work, and I think it's paid off. Uh, for Brentford, Janelt has probably been the one that impressed me the most across the season. 
I'd probably go Yanold. Uh For Leeds, it's got to be Rafinha. He's the sole reason they're not in the bottom three right now. For Everton, again, it's very, very hard to pick anyone from Everton and say they've been good this season. You might have to give it to the goalkeeper. It's bad and all as he is. He's had a couple of games where he's kept them in it and he's earned them a point or even a victory. So you might go Pickford. For Newcastle, be inclined to go with Jolington. Since he moved back into midfield, he's been pretty good. So I might just go Jolington there. For Burnley, it's Max Cornet. He's just added a different level of quality to that team and given them a new attacking impetus. Uh, for Watford, it's Manuel Dennis. He's one of the best performing attackers in the league this season, despite being largely surrounded by Dross. And for Norwich, Matthias Norman's missed too many games. It would be him. Otherwise, uh, Timo Pukki, he's just a consistent six and a half out of ten who will get you a goal sometimes. And the defence hasn't been good enough to warrant it. 53 goals conceded is an abomination. Uh, I think you'd have to go Timo Pukki. Um, Lubo, here is one for you. The potential for playing Manchester City four games in a row in April, April has excited many minds. Where do you stand on this? Would you rather see Liverpool face City in the Champions League over two legs in the FA Cup in April, knowing you could face them in the Champions League and FA Cup finals instead? Which is better, facing them in April or potentially facing them in May in, in the finals? I would rather play them. I would rather play City in a two-legged game than a one-legged game. Even though we know Pep has that habit of overthinking things, I would rather play City in a two-legged game in the Champions League. In the FA Cup, the final would be fine. The final is the final. It's a one-off game at Wembley where... There's no real advantage for either side, but in the Champions League, I'd rather play them in a two-legged game than a one-legged game. Um, AMK2889, your all-time 11 to have won a Copa America versus your all-time 11 to have won a Euros, and who would win? Oh, well, that is that is a belter of a question. Um, I'm going to limit this to, obviously, the years that I've been alive um, and not and not look back, you know, at, like, the 60s and 70s because it just gets too messy, I think, when you start to, to look back there. Um, right, Copa America. Let's see. A piece of paper. Let's write this out. So, um, my Copa team is going to start with Lionel Messi, obviously, who won the most recent one. Or nine is going to be there. And Luis Suarez is going to be there. Um, in midfield, I can see this becoming very attack-minded in truth. 
Um, let me see. In midfield, we will go with. Huh. Let's see. Redondo would have to be in there. He won it in 93. Uh, so he's definitely in. I think Diego Simeone. Now, this is obviously a personal team, so. It's just the players that I like, so I'm going to go with Simeone. And for my third midfielder, probably, I mean, it's tough to leave out Rivaldo, isn't it? Could I get away with a front four? Probably could with those two in midfield. I probably could with those two in midfield. Hmm. But then... Again, there's just a couple of Brazilians that deserve to be in. Aldair will be one of my centre-backs. That is for absolute certain. This is probably going to end up in largely a Brazilian. See, Romario won it as well. How do you not have Romario in your, in your team? I can't play Suarez as a winger, though. That's just silly. Uh, and, he's, and Suarez has to be in for me. Suarez has to be in. I'll go Dunga as my third midfielder. So Simeone, Redondo and Dunga, very defensive minded, I know, but it'll all make sense once we put Roberto Carlos at left back. And at right back, I mean... Cafu, I suppose it has to be, doesn't it? Has to be Cafu. And for my other centre back, then I'm going to go Diego Godin. So I've got Cafu, Aldair, Godin, and Carlos, Simeone, Redondo, Dunga in midfield, Messi, Ornine, and Suarez uh, as my front three. And in goal. I mean, I, I loved Sergio Goicochea. Absolutely loved him from the 1990 World Cup onwards. So I'll go with him. Shout out to, well, well, hang on. Alison Becker, I mean, in fairness. In fairness. I'll go Alison in goal. Uh, as for my Euros team, Um, what we will go with Matthias Zammer will start my team as my sweeper Verratti is going to be one of my midfielders 
Zidane will be my 10. I'm going to play two tens behind the striker because Iniesta has to be in. Busquets will be my holding midfielder. My striker will be Thierry Henry. I'm not of Hullet in this team, though. Verratti's out. Verratti has to drop out, unfortunately, because Hullet has to come in. Uh, right card will be one centre-back. And I think Thomas Helmer will be the other one. I'll go Lillian Turam, though out of position. I'm going to play him as the right wing-back. And at left wing back, I will go for um, Lazara Zoo. Yeah, probably be something Lazara Zoo. I'm a goalkeeper. We got Schmeichel, Kopka, Barthez, can't think of the Greek for his name, or Casillas, it's got to be Schmeichel. So I've got Schmeichel, Turam, Rijkaard, Zammer, Helmer, Lazarazu is a back five. Uh, deepest two in midfield, I'll go with Busquets and Iniesta, with then Zidane and Hullet as the more attack-minded midfielders and Thierry Henry up front, though obviously you could go Van Basten. I just enjoyed watching Henry more, and I saw obviously more of him as well. Um, who would win? I think the South Americans. I think the South Americans probably, because you've got, you've got Messi and you've got Ornine. I know the other team's got incredible players as well. The other team would have the advantage in midfield. Be very close. It would be very, very close. Um, I'll, I'll go with the South Americans just because I think Messi and 09 make the difference. Um, right. If we can, uh, Jay Carlos, if we consider Joe Gomez to be our backup for the rest of the season, what formation and lineup will Oh, back up right back for the rest of the season. Sorry, which formation and lineup would get the best out of him? Um, we're not going to change the formation in terms of getting the best lineup for to suit Joe. I think it's probably with Matip next to him because Matip has that ball carrying centre back, at least gives you that aspect of the game. Whereas if it's Ebu, it's a lot more defensive minded. Uh, Chris Colby, the press has talked co consistently about Dortmund selling Haaland in 22 and Bellingham in 23. Do you see a scenario where they sell both and try to reboot? 
the EPL money may always be there for Bellingham based on talent and his profile as an England international. However, it feels like the Haaland money would be stretched too thin trying to buy his replacement, get Bellingham's replacement in and trying to figure out the back line unless you feel the Sewell, line Sewell signing improves him a lot. I don't. I think the idea of Sewell and Hummels as centre-back is horrific. Um, but I don't think they'll sell both. I, I see your logic for sure because you really would be inclined to blow it up and start over. And I and by blow it up, I mean blow it up. Sell Torgan Hazard, sell Julian Brand, um, sell Axel Witzel, sell Akanji, sell Hummels, you know, and maybe keep one or two. You're going to keep Royce. I'd keep Emre Chan. I'd keep Mo Dehoud. Uh, I'd keep Daniel Mallon because I think he'll, he'll be worth more in a year than he's worth now. Uh, you keep the goalkeeper because he's quite good, but maybe keep Guerrero, sell Nico Schultz, definitely sell Thomas Mounier, move on from Zagadou, just start moving on a lot of these players that haven't worked out from you or for you rather. And if you could sell Bellingham for 100 million and you've got Bellingham plus Haaland plus the rest of the money you could raise, you could start to really build something proper over the space of two years. But I just don't see a situation in which they'll sell. I think you've nailed it for why as well. Premier League money will always be there for Bellingham. Unless he gets hurt, that money is always going to be there. Uh, AMK2889, aside from the fact that Liverpool as a whole played great against Leeds, do you want to place bets on how many of them will be in the card crooks? Team of the week, four goal, different goal scorers, so those four are shooing. Yeah, he'll, he'll 100%, but that would be it. He'd put those four in. I think he'd put Diaz in because I think he'd have seen the highlights and he'd have seen some of the flicks and tricks. Uh, Andy Robertson got an assist, so that might be enough to get him in, but none of the midfield would make it. Um, let's see. Isaac Gilding. A while ago, I gave you a ridiculous scenario involving one-on-ones on a seven-a-side pitch, asking who would win various matchups. I can't be bothered to write out the whole scenario again, but I've got some more for you. If you can't remember the rules, I'm happy for you to invent them. If we just go one-on-one, uh, Michael Laudrup against Luis Figo. I'll go Laudrup. I think Laudrup was the better player. Figo was incredible, but I think Laudrup was the better player. Kessie versus Zambo and Gisa. Zambo has more power and is a better ball carrier. I think he'd have the advantage over Kessie. Barella versus Verratti, both really good on the ball. I think Barella is better off the ball, plays at a higher tempo. I think he'd win. Thiago against Modric, they might just think each other to death. Uh, I'll go Thiago because hometown bias. Canseo versus Hakimi, it's Hakimi. More pace, more power. More direct, more consistent. Danny Alves versus Zanetti, both great going forward. Zanetti, a much better defender. I'll go for him. Ronaldinho versus Berbatov, it's Dino. It's Dino in any 1v1 circumstance against basically anyone ever. I I would go with him. Lothar Mateus against Kante. Mateus is a much better player than Kante. Kante has so much energy and that power and drive and speed that I think Mateus would find it tough to live with him. In a 1v1. I think in a 2v2 situation, he'd probably be better off. Mane versus Coleman, Kingsley Coleman. I think he'd go Sadio, better finisher. 
though Coleman has a bit more pace about him these days. Henri versus R9, it's always going to be R9. And I love Henri, but it, it'll be R9. Michael Owen versus Chiro Mobile. Michael Owen, more pace, just as good a finisher, more inventive, better dribbler. Yeah, him. Sunes versus Keane. Sunes. Sunes. A more talented footballer. And just as tough, if not tougher. So yeah, Sunes. Salah versus Baresi. Salah. Young Baresi might be the only centre-back in history that could live with Salah in terms of pace, movement and agility. But Salah's ability to finish from anywhere gives him a distinct advantage over Baresi. De Gea over Oblak. Oblak always. Have you seen De Gea take a penalty? It's not pretty. Um, how do you see the Adam? Sorry, Adam asks. How do you see the upcoming loan restrictions being brought in by FIFA impacting the Premier League and football? More importantly, on a broad spectrum. Um, so, club trained players and players over the age of twenty, or players twenty one and younger are not impacted. So it won't affect the likes of Liverpool, but it will affect the likes of City and the likes of Chelsea and a lot of those Italian clubs. And I think it's going to be a really good thing. I think we'll see more of a distribution of talent. I think we'll see a lot more of the middle ground starting to rise up. I think we'll see those middle-level players drop down a level and that will elevate the lower level. I, I think it can only be a good thing. When clubs are no longer allowed to hoard talent, I think it'll be a good thing. A couple more here now. Let's see. This one is from Stephen Smith. Uh, rate your top five Premier League sides based on a single season in the last 30 years. So um, I'd say Liverpool 18-19. I thought they were better than they were the, the year they won the title. The year they won the Champions League and finished second. I think that's the better team. I think City 17-18. I think Mourinho's... Mourinho's team... Mourinho's first Chelsea. I think that would be in my top five. Obviously, Arsenal's Invincibles... And though it's not their best domestic season, the the treble-winning United team have got to be there. United have had better teams in the Premier League, but I suppose like, they did, was it 08, they won the Champions League and the, and the Premier League title. I thought they were a better team the following season in 09 because they added more quality. So I'll go United 09. City 18, Liverpool 19, Arsenal's Invincibles are 04, and probably is it Chelsea 05. Chelsea 04, 05. Yeah, Chelsea 04, 05. One defeat all season. They were just, they were sensational to, to the, the credit. They were just absolutely different class that year. Yeah, they'd be my five. I would rank them 
I, I'm just going to put the Invincibles one because they didn't lose. And I think I don't, I don't care what the arguments are against it. If you don't lose in an entire season, that's it for me. Um, I think the United team are fifth. I think Chelsea's are fourth. City second, Liverpool third. I would go Arsenal's Invincibles, City Centurions, the Liverpool team that came within 0.8 a millimetre of the League and Champions League double, then the United team in 09. No, then the, the Chelsea team under Mourinho rather than the United team in 09. And that would be them. A uh, couple that came in on Twitter then. Let's rock through them. Where are we? Screenshots. Right, Sports Lens asks, uh, what three things would you do to improve women's football? What country do you think would be a great World Cup host that hasn't hosted the edition previously? And three, in light of the recent tension, could Bramvich be ousted from Chelsea? I would say, in all likelihood, the answer to the third one is no. Given he's now an Israeli citizen, I believe it is. Is he Israeli or Portuguese or something? He's got a new citizenship. I don't think there's any possibility. What country do you think could host the World Cup? I think Australia would do a tremendous job. I really do. I think the Aussies, they do a brilliant job with the World Cup of of rugby. Now, maybe you'd do Australia and New Zealand, but I think Australia. Uh, What three things do you think would improve women's football? I think more promotion has got to be the first one. I'd like to see Sky do like double headers where there's a woman's game on and then a man's game and you try and drag the audience in or put the man's game on first and then put the woman's game on and try and keep the audience and try and get that crossover. I think they've done a very good job at kind of uh, reaching out to schools and stuff and offering, you know, discounted tickets, but more of that. I think better coaching is obviously going to be key. So I think you've you've really got to start investing in the coaching side of things and promoting that it's a pathway into the game. Better promotion, better coaching. I think big clubs taking it more seriously. For example, the fact that Liverpool's women's team were in the situation they were with no real training ground of their own no dressing rooms or anything like that. That's a disgrace. So clubs need to put need to be pressured to put more money in. I think that would lead to a massive, massive uptick. Obviously, we've seen how successful it is in America with the the women's league there. And you know, the other thing that, that gets me though is you see a lot of women they play a season in America, then they come and they play part of the season in Europe as well, and they might go to Australia and play as well. Like I remember seeing Jessica Fishlock, who um, came on my old podcast, and we used to talk about we were we were talking about you know like how many clubs she'd played for, and she was making the point that you sort of have to bounce around. Like she has been um, with what what was the Seattle Reign, they're now owned by Olympic Lyon uh, since two thousand and thirteen. But while being there, she's been on loan. At Glasgow City, Melbourne Victory, FC Frankfurt, Melbourne City again. Oh, Melbourne Victory the first time, Melbourne City the second time, uh, Leon and Reading. And that's all while still playing a full season 
with Seattle Rain. And she missed most of the year with a torn ACL as well. So, you know, all of those loans. And she was, I think she was a manager. Like, she was coaching with Melbourne City. She was a player coach. Uh, She was the player head coach of Melbourne City when she was there as well. So she's doing all of this and playing at a high level. I think she's not, certainly not the only one. So... Uh, I definitely think, you know, we could look at certainly improving the the standard of pay that they receive uh, as, as a, bi- a big part. Um, Im- Imiuk, do you think Cucurella could have what it takes to take over from Andy Robertson? Simple answer is yes. I really like Mark Cucurella. I think he's an outstanding player and he has a lot of the same attributes as Robertson. The only doubt I have about him is maybe he's a little bit small for a Jurgen Klopp team. He's like 5'7". That might be the only doubt I have, but as a player, absolutely. I think he's I think he's exceptionally good. One of the better left-backs in the league. Um, AT7, what's happened to Oblek and Terstegen this season? Oblek has fallen off a cliff, and I, there's no real rhyme or reason to it, but the entire Atleti team have been poor, so it may just be part of a general malaise there. Tushtegan was bad last year as well. He may be in decline, which is a concern. I, but again, it could just be part of the fact that he's at a club who have become a losing club, and Barca have lost a lot of football games over the last couple of years. There's been a lot of confusion, a lot of uncertainty there. You've had a lot of players under pressure, been asked to take big pay cuts and such. So it may just be a lot of that. May I maybe he's salvageable. Maybe if a, a club can get him and bring him in and rescue him, there may be a chance that you get the best O Black, uh, the best Tushtegan back. I mean, we saw Manuel Nero go through about eighteen months have been fairly terrible, and he bounced back. De Gea was garbage for two and a half years. He's bounced back. He's not nearly the keeper he was beforehand, but he's you know. He was a very good keeper again. Um, so yeah, maybe maybe you can with with him. O Black, I think I think he'll be fine. I think it's just this season has um, has been a real stinker for him and for Atleti in, in, as a whole. Um, Alex Sapupo Sapupo uh, asks question for tomorrow's pod. Mitrovic looks on track to obliterate the championship scoring record. Why hasn't worked for him in the Prem? So last night he broke the championship scoring record with his 33rd goal in only 30 games. Like when you consider there's 46 games in that season, it is fairly incredible what he's done. Uh, Fulham have played, I want to say 32 games. He's missed two. The simple answer is I really don't know what goes wrong from in the Premier League. Like, he obviously joined Newcastle in 15-16, and he scored 9-34 and in his first season. He was really young at the time as well. He was coming off two great seasons with Anderlecht, and he was really young, he was really aggressive, and he was a bit of a head case, a bit of a, a, bit of a loose cannon that, you know, 20-21, it's understandable. Um, and they went down and you thought he'll do well in the championship and he didn't and then they came up and Benitez didn't seem to have much time for him and he got loaned to Fulham in the championship and he scored 12 in 17 
and he helped them get up so they bought him permanently. And he scored 11 and 37. You're thinking, okay, it's first full season in the Premier League with Fulham as a mature adult, not the kid he was. There's more to come, but they go down. He gets 26 and 40. And last season, you really thought he is going to explode in the Premier League. He's going to do really, really well because he's 26. He's entering his prime. He's got everything it takes to play at this level. He's suited to the style of the league. And then it just was all very, very flat. Three goals in 27 games. Not helped by the fact he was coached by Scotty Twocoats. But it was all a bit weird. He, he didn't seem as motivated last season. He really seemed to have checked out on the team a couple of different times. So I, I just don't know. But this season he has been phenomenal. And that goal he got yesterday was excellent. Great work by Carvalho in the build-up. But I I don't know whether to expect him to come up next season and score 20 or 4. Because it'll be one or the other. There's very little chance it's like 12. It'll be 20 or it'll be 4. Because he's just one of those feast or famine type of players. And if his mood is not right and he's not confident and he doesn't feel like he has the belief of the manager. And remember, Parker questioned him publicly a couple of times last year and I don't think he liked that. So... I think he really needs to have that belief from a manager. But if he has that, yeah, he can get 20 for sure. He has the skill set. He's, I mean, he's ideally built for the Premier League. 6-2, built like a tank. Marco Silva's done a brilliant job with him this year. And the hope would be that he can carry that on for next year. So that would be that. And that is the last question for today. Thank you, as always, for listening, folks. I will speak to you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Have a good evening and enjoy whatever game you choose to watch. And if you're living in Russia or Ukraine, just take care of yourselves. All right, bye-bye. Network.